So, Trellick, what I guess I'd like to start with is asking you what the significance is of the Irish Studies program in relation to its relationship to people in Montana. Well, I suppose it's part of the history of Montana. Mm-hmm. If you want to look at uh, um, the history of the state from the time of the first Irish immigrants, well, um, you go back over 150 years um, and you look at people like Thomas Francis Marr and those that came here. Right. And you see what um, people like Marr and Daly and people like uh, Mike Mansfield of Irish heritage and what they have done in terms of promoting the state and serving the state and um, their contributions, which are probably well known and well documented. Uh, yes. I don't uh, imagine many people know about many other people who have contributed so much to giving this state its kind of character and its personality, its history. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, uh, what we sometimes don't understand about Montana is the role it has played in Irish history. is sure. a significant part of the whole story of Ireland. And really this comes to light around the time of the struggle for Irish independence, when in the United States there were five areas that were considered the great strongholds of Irish nationalism, and Montana was one of those strongholds. Right. And the reality is that there would be no Irish independence or Irish freedom were it not for the Irish of America. Right. And this whole uh, contribution or relationship, which is very, very special, uh, has continued right down to the present day. So if we're looking at an Irish Studies program, it's not here by some act of God or... Um, it's not here by accident, in other words. It's not here by accident, no. Right. But actually, there's a history behind it. There's a history that basically speaks to this relationship going back over 150 years. Sure. And one of the purposes of the Irish Studies program is to bring people to learn not only about the history of Ireland and the Irish, but the history of the Irish Americans and the Irish of Montana yeah. and the contributions they have played and uh, to preserving their heritage and their culture and reminding us all of like who were the people that came before us, mm-hmm. what were the challenges they faced, and how they overcame their cha- those challenges. They have bestowed a legacy to us. Right. You know? And I think uh, we don't often think about these things. We don't often reflect on our past, you know. Mm-hmm. And I hope so, uh, that the Irish Studies Program does give people an opportunity to reflect on that past. Right. Because knowing where you come f- uh, from is probably very helpful in uh, bringing you to an understanding of where you are. And knowing where you are is kind of useful if you want to look at where you want to go, where right. you want to be. Looking forward. It's looking forward. So right. really what we're talking about is a program that is there functioning almost like a bridge between past and present, you know, and providing us with the resources to look to a future. Sure. So, you know, we've had lots of conversation over the years, and as well, you you mentioned that it's no accident that there's an Irish Studies program at the University of Montana. As well, I think that you would say it's no accident that you ended up in Montana yourself as an Irish immigrant. No. Yeah. So can you tell us something about that just a little bit? Well, I think people don't, I can tell you, and it comes down through generations. When I was a small boy growing up in Ireland, my grandfather who lives on the Ivara Peninsula, across the water from the Beira Peninsula, talked an awful, an awful lot about the uh, immigrants from the Beira Peninsula, from the copper mines that came out to Butte. Right. So as I was uh, a young boy, not only me, my brothers, sisters, Butte was a familiar name yes. you know, uh, to us, and it was part of the whole history of the Irish. Yes, it's located in Montana, but it belonged to our story, even though we were 6,000 miles away in Ireland. Right. And I'll tell you an interesting kind of addition to that. About uh, four years ago, there was a centenary celebration of a small school in uh, West Kerry. My daughter goes to the school, and this was a famous school. So you had the media from Ireland present, 
and they were asking the kids about um, the school and uh, about other students. And one of the men- uh, one of the interviewers mentioned my daughter and asked this little girl about my daughter. And, uh, oh yeah, Roisin, said the little girl. And they asked the little girl, where's Roisin from? And the little girl said Butte, which wasn't true. She's from Missoula. Right, and but inter- that's what she remembered. But, yeah, because Butte uh, was known to them through the songs that they sing themselves, you know. So yeah. then the interviewer asked her, well, call Butte, which means where is Butte? And the little girl answered, which means over the hill alongside Dingle. In her little mind, just like mine, Butte was a place that was a part of the Irish landscape in the same way Dingle yeah. was or Killarney was or Dublin or Near Park. the Dingle Peninsula. Exactly. Yeah. So even though uh, in terms of its physical location, it's 6,000 miles in our imaginations, it was here. It was, it was part of us, yeah, yeah, part of our story. And I think what added to this as well uh, was a very interesting uh, incident. I know people find this difficult to believe, but when I was in elementary school, we were doing a history course on wars and mm-hmm. wars that the Irish were involved in that they had no business being involved in. <laughs> so the teacher asked us how many of us had relatives had served in armies or in wars, and everybody in the class had somebody that had gotten right. involved in some kind of a fracas, going way back from the time of the Crimean War down through the Boer War, First World War, Second World War, Vietnam War, Korean War, whatever you're having yourself. They were involved somewhere along the line. But there was this kid in the class called Brian O'Donovan who put his hand up and said he had a great-granduncle killed at a little ba- little bighorn. And uh, nobody believed him because getting shot by Russians or Germans or Koreans or whatever was pretty run-of-the-mill. But getting sh- um, killed by Indians, now that's Hollywood stuff. No one believed him. Mm-hmm. But his mother had somehow come into possession of the records of this man and she brought him up to the school and showed him to the teacher. So at once... All the scheduled classes were cancelled. We were going to do a study on the wars that took place in Montana between the cavalry and the American Indians. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was fascinating. I mean, I drew a picture of Sitting Bull. I think generally most people are on the side of the right. Indians in the course of it all because their situation was very similar to what we had. So it fitted into our paradigm. Yes. You know? But anyway, well, I was living in San Francisco many years later and I wanted to go back to New York and... Um, we sat down and decided, okay, what way would we go? Would we go south or go north? We decided to go north. And the reason we decided to go north because I wanted to visit Butte because I'd heard so much about it as a child. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to the Little Bighorn Battlefield, basically to say a prayer over O'Donovan's great-granddaughter's right. grave, you know, yeah. and then head back. So we did that. We came up to Montana, spent a week in uh, Butte, then headed over to eastern Montana, to Little Bighorn Battlefield, learned yeah. about his granduncle, and uh, right. then moved on. right. Well, so that's a fascinating story. So there's so many more fascinating stories. Uh, One of the ones that is of interest to me, and I'll just, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned Thomas Francis Marr. Uh, And his namesake in Missoula is the Thomas Marr Bar. Um, But uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was the first territorial governor of the state of Montana. He was. the territory of Montana. He was the acting governor. Sidney Edgerton was the governor uh, before him, but he came over. And he was not an American citizen at the time. He had become an American citizen, yeah. He had become an American citizen, but... Of Irish heritage. Of Irish heritage, And had traveled throughout the world was involved in a number of wars. Well, right? he and was landed in Montana at Her Majesty's expense. Yes, he had seen correct. a bit of the world. Um, he, I suppose to know the story of Thomas Francis Marr, you better t- know the story of his grandparents, 
um, Thomas Marr, who came to Newfoundland and where he acquired a significant amount of wealth. Newfoundland was like a little Irish colony mm. and it was heavily influenced by the American Revolution. And the ideals of the American Revolution were the ideals that Thomas Francis Marr's grandfather, his father, and Thomas Francis Marr himself would inherit. Thomas Francis was born in Ireland, he grew up in Ireland, but he despised the liberalism of the Whigs, which wanted basically to create a ruling elite and have everybody else working for them. He yes. preferred the American model, the democratic liberal, and right. that's what he fought for. And that's why he was against O'Connell, and he became part of the Young Ireland Movement and was part of the rising of 1848. Uh, he was captured, he was tried, he was sentenced to death. And then he was sent at Her Majesty's expense, as I mentioned, to Tasmania for himself. Yeah. He escaped from there, became a celebrity in America, and um, then joined. Um, he became a, a journalist here. He was a lawyer. He was a very talented man. Great clarinet player as well, by the way. Mm. And then he um, joined the, um, the uh, Union Army during the Civil War to protect the Union because he believed that the only thing that would protect freedom was authority. He saw authority as being freedom's greatest ally, and that the union and unity was what was going to preserve the public republic and what she stood for. So right. he and thousands of more went out and fought yeah. for, um, for the union. And um, at the end of the war, he found himself out of luck with the uh, Irish Americans in, uh, in um, New York, because they were too, he felt, um, um, how would I put it, subservient to the Democratic Party and mm. they weren't asserting their own kind of rights to become leaders of the Democratic Party. He was also a great champion of the African-Americans. He despised abolition, mm. but he was a great champion of freedom. He felt abolition was a ruse to impose wage slavery on people. Oh, and the reason they wanted to get rid of slavery because if you have a slave, you have to provide food and housing and clothing and so forth, which was social protection, which you wouldn't have under the new system. Yeah. You know, so that was his, um, his issue with the whole idea of abolition. He eventually came out here to Montana, was appointed acting governor, and when he came out here in his first speech, he said, I'm going, I've come having fought a war with thousands more of my countrymen so that people will ex can exercise their democratic rights, and I'm going to ensure that they do. Now, in Montana at the time, it was controlled by, I suppose, the winning party, which were the black Republicans, and they were not happy about giving the Democrats any um, any, leverage. any rights yeah, at all. Right. So they wouldn't, um, they had somehow construed it in a way that <clears throat> the, you couldn't call a legislature, but Maher ignored him, and he called the Legislative Assembly, and then he called a second one and a third one. So yeah. he basically drew down upon himself the uh, ire of the black Republicans. Now they typically would have hanged somebody like Maher, but it was problematic because the state at the time had an awful lot of Fenians, and Fenians were all veterans of the Civil War, both on the Confederate and on yeah. the Union side. So could you describe what Fenians are for people who don't know? I mean, you Well, know. a Fenian is, um, this was an organization set up by the Irish, uh, and the idea was, after the famine, they were so upset at the way they had been treated during the time of the famine that what they wanted to do was raise an army in America that would go back to Ireland and defeat the English in Ireland and mm -hmm. take uh, control of the country. The war presented them with an opportunity to learn, you know, the skills of warfare, and hundreds of thousands of them joined, both in the Union Army and also in the Confederate Army. 
And they were hugely representative at all levels, right up to senior officers. Sure. And uh, an indication of just how powerful they were was that in 1863, when they held their convention in Chicago, the Union Army permitted the Fenian officers and soldiers from the Confederate Army to pass through their lines, attend a conference, and then return to the Confederate lines to continue fighting the Civil War. Right. You yeah, know? that's crazy. And it, then so... That presence, that Fenian presence, was here in Montana. It was, and this is what really was protecting Maher, because nobody wanted to deal with Andrew O'Connell. He wasn't given to discussing things. Yes. And those around him weren't kind of given to discussing matters either. They were basically very violent men. Yeah, absolutely. violent men. So, and I think um, those that uh, were in the leadership of the black Republicans, like um, Wilbur Fisk Sanders and those, recognized that there were a lot more nasty Fenians there and the war of them. Yeah. And this also brings us to a theory regarding Mars death, that Mars death was actually deliberate. They had to get rid of him. Because the one thing Mar was, and people talk about him being a, a divisive figure, he was actually a very unifying figure. He was all about unity. Yeah. When he set up the militia, he had both represents from the Confederate and from the Union Army mm-hmm. in his militia, mm-hmm. you know, sworn enemies of um, 10 years earlier and were now in the same militia serving together. So he was trying to forge and bring about unity between them because mm-hmm. he recognized from this unity came the strength right. that would give the Republic, you know, longevity and its greatness. But he's considered to be a divisive figure, you know. But the thing is, is that um, when it came to his death, um, the nationalists will tell you that it was done um, with the intention of not leaving a body. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is, if you have a body, then you have a funeral. And the problem is with having a funeral, having the numbers of Fenians in the state would go from to- 1,000 to probably 50,000. Yeah. And after the funeral was over and done, what they would be mayhem. Yeah. And they understood all of that, you know. So no corpus delecti, no funeral. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, there is actually a prominent statue of Thomas Marr in Montana, right outside the Capitol building. And, uh, you know, I think that that's just one of those things that's emblematic of Irish history in the state of Montana. It's a, in a significant place right outside the rotunda uh, on the front lawn, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. Correct? And it was paid for by Irish miners. Well, why would Irish miners pay for it? Because Maher was a great champion of labor as well. Yes, Maher of course. basically defined slavery in his newspaper, the Irish News, yeah. as not paying a man a just wage. Yeah, well, which was something that uh, Marcus Daly was a professional at, if I'm not mistaken. Well, he changed the labor laws and paid him the best wages in the country. And here's the thing about Marcus. Thomas Marr changed the labor no. laws. Or Marcus, Marcus Daly. Daly. Okay. Marcus Daly brought in the eight-hour work there, and he also paid his miners. There was no union strike when Marcus Daly was there. Yeah. Because he paid him the best wages in the country. That's fascinating. I, I would have thought and exactly he, the opposite no, because of his reputation. No. Yeah, he was I, a heavy-handed guy. He was. I mean, he was basically my way out of highway, but he also knew how to treat people. So Mark Staley was a bit like an old Gaelic chieftain. Yes. And that's how he functioned. So he protected his exactly. clan. Correct. And he employed all Irish and he gave them the best wages and took care of them. That's he did employ all Irish, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. He did. But the interesting thing is that Marcus Daly's father, Luke Daly, was a member of the United Irishmen, or not the United Irishmen, the uh, Young Irelanders, the same organization that Mar led in the uprising of 1848. Oh, fascinating. And here's yeah. the thing. It was the Irish miners that paid most of the money for the statue. Well, why? Because Maher, even though it's never thought, was a great champion of labor. labor. He recognized that the most important thing in the economy was labor. 
that basic labor to capital, turn it into wealth, and yeah. your laborer was your consumer. Yeah. And so if you paid your laborer well, he would actually have the mind to buy the stuff you were making. Yeah, you know? exactly. It made simple, logical sense. So they were the ones who paid for it, huh. which is interesting point you make. I mean, if you look at the whole history of the Irish, it's stitched into the landscape of Montana. You look at uh, the Mar statue up there, you got the Daly statue in Butte. You go out the door here and drive down towards town, you see St. Patrick Hospital. Well, yeah. why is the name St. Patrick? Because the Irish miners gave the French nuns the money to start the hospital. Uh, yeah. Condition wise, you name it after St. Patrick. Right. You know? Yeah, no, that's an interesting thing. And when you think about the impact that Marcus Daly has had on the United States and the history of the United States, both from a mining perspective and, I mean, he was one of the wealthiest men in the world uh, and didn't have con- many contemporaries that could reach beyond his wealth, obviously. Um, and then his history in the Bitterroot Valley, obviously, with Marcus Daly uh, Mansion, and then all of the property around that that's now the stock farm, mm-hmm. um, that was all of his. And he basically developed Hamilton into what it was. If I remember right, there was no rail in Hamilton until Daly moved there. Is that correct? I don't know about that, because he never actually sure. lived there. He died before the actual mansion was open. He died in 1900. Right. And then his his most... I mean, his, uh, I think, daughter, maybe it was his granddaughter, just passed away like that maybe was Mar- that was three Clark. or four years ago. That was, was that Clark? That was Clark's granddaughter, his youngest daughter. Okay. She was 104 years of age, who was Daly's nemesis. But Daly's, here's the thing, things get very complicated because Marcus Clark, or Marcus Clark, Marcus Daly and William Clark were enemies. Yeah. They had been involved in a couple of projects together. But it was a kind of Catholic-Protestant divide because Ma Daly was Catholic and Clark was Protestant. But then Clark was married, his brother was married to a sister of the woman to whom Daly was married. Oh, So it was pretty complicated. Yeah, that would be, yeah, yeah, so Christmas. Can you imagine the dinner parties? <laughs> no, I know? cannot imagine. But here's the interesting thing about Daly because Daly was sending money home to Ireland as well to right. schools and churches and all that good stuff. And this was a common feature in Ireland. If you look at any of the records of Ireland, you know, the 1890s, 1900s, and so forth, like who was providing money to um, schools and for building of hospitals and churches was the Irish in America were doing it. They were basically rebuilding Ireland. Right, because that's the only place they could make the money to rebuild the homeland, right? Because there was no opportunity for the Irish in Ireland. No, no. No, which is... Kind of a tragedy, obviously. Yeah, it was. But they never forgot, you see, and that's the thing about it. Like, they were building their own schools here. They were building their own hospitals here. They were building their own churches here. They were building their own banks and all kinds of different things to serve their community. But at the same time, they kind of continually sent money back home to Ireland. Yeah. You know? And it's kind of amazing when you think about it, like this whole loyalty to their own country and their own community back in Ireland. Right. You know what I mean? A lot of the things that we would, I suppose more or less my parents' generation had, came as a result of the money that was coming. And he just continued right down to my day, by the way, the package from America, mm-hmm. you know, would come. Like my uncle would send home a package that was coming up to Christmas. And there were these, I mean, boxes of stuff with jeans, you know, Wrangler jeans and things like that we couldn't get in Ireland. Yeah, sure. Uh, right. Couldn't get them. Yeah. Mayonnaise. We, mayonnaise was sent home, you know. It was food sent home, and his jeans and, and tops and shorts that we could never, we were, we were going to grow into, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, it was, it would come to the house, and other families were the same, the package yeah. from America. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
And it was always great ex- excitement when the uncles from America came home. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, they were a bit different from the uncles from, uh, you know, even the same family from England, but the uncles from America, when they came home, man, it was Christmas. Yes. They were going out spending money left, right, and center. Yeah, sure, mm-hmm. of course. Well, so all, histor- all history aside and stories aside, one of the reasons we're here talking today is, uh, you know, obviously uh, St. Patrick's Day is right around the corner and uh, Friends of Irish Studies uh, needs our community support. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about stories, but why do you think it's important for us to support Friends of Irish Studies here in Missoula? I think it's important for one, but uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, um, it's without, without the Friends of Irish Studies, we wouldn't have the program that we have. Mm-hmm. I think the program belongs it's in the university, but its roots are in the, in the community. It's from the community group that it, it emerged. It was inspired, I guess, by the history of the, uh, of the state and mm-hmm. supported by the community of the state. And the, mm-hmm. the program that we have is, um, belongs to the, the people of Montana. Mm-hmm. And the organization, the community organization, provides the greatest amount of support. Uh, has been the Friends of Irish Studies. I would say they're the single, uh, they are the single greatest uh, benefactor of the, of the Irish Studies program. Right. I know we're facing challenges. Of know, course. Uh, with budgetary cuts and so forth. And what we're trying to do is raise the money to guarantee the, uh, the future of the Irish Studies program. Right. And also develop the program so it not only functions to provide access to courses for the people of Montana, but also to provide um, access to courses for those outside of Montana. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there, for example, trying to learn the Irish language. And we have the resources to make those courses available to them. I, um, I was talking to um, a, a representative of the Irish government some months ago, and he said to me that the Irish government figures there's about a million people trying to learn the Irish language worldwide. That's really something else. Yeah, well, I said to him, yeah, no, who came up with those figures? Either he had slugged back a bottle of whiskey or they're being jacked up. Well, he says, they're the figures we arrived at. I said, well, my estimates are, from talking to other people, is about two hundred and fifty to 300,000. He says, well, what am I going to say? But my daughter was on Duolingo, and um, I saw her on it, and, I, and she said, I teach Irish on this as well. I said, oh, do it. Can I look at it? And then I went and I looked and I had 970,000 active uh, users. I goes, holy God, those boys must have gotten it right. And I'm completely... Uh, Blown uh, away yeah. by the, yeah, by the, yeah, by the need for something like yeah. that. So Friends of Irish Studies is the group that supports the Irish Studies program on Correct. campus at the University of Montana. You mentioned that they're the largest benefactor of that program. So... Um, it is mostly community funded. Correct. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, who would be in second place? Would it be the Irish government? Because they help fund the program they as do. well. It's a partnership. They do, yeah. It would be. The Irish government probably would be the second largest. They yeah. contribute money to, um, well, to a number of different things. They could, towards the um, teaching of the Irish language. That's a big deal with them. Yeah. Um, and then they also have the Immigrant Support Program. Right which they provide money then to um, to different groups here in Montana. So, for example, uh, recently um, they provided money to help the ancient art of Hibernians in Butte yes. who work in the cemetery. They provide money to the Butte Silver Bowl Archives to digitize Irish records. They provided money um, to support the celebration of the Mardays in uh, Virginia City to buy hurleys and helmets for young hurlers. 
different things. Yeah. Than that. You see, there's a big payoff there. The Irish government understands the importance of culture. And they know that the relationship with uh, America is dependent on this maintaining this relationship. And that's why they fund Irish studies programs. Sure. And what they encourage us to do, and this is what we do as well, is that um, to invite people to go back to Ireland, you know, mm-hmm. and um, like they'll give us money to uh, offset some of the costs students may have to study abroad in Ireland. They right. want us to do things like, for example, the Friends of Irish Studies run a tour to Ireland. Yes, you know, right. They love the fact that the Friends of Irish Studies sponsor a week-long immersion course in the Irish language that brings on all these people from different states into Montana. And I think this is the thing that sometimes we forget about Irish studies and education. And I suppose when you look at the University of Montana and you compare to what they do in Ireland, um, like, for example, University College Cork, which is our sister university, and we have an exchange program. Mm-hmm. Well, when we formed an exchange program in 2005, we were about the same size, same number of students, same number of faculty. Anyway, the, the University College Cork recognized they were facing a demographic crisis in Ireland, that the number of students was not going to increase. So what did they do? They went to the government and they told the government that education is a resource in the same way as our golf uh, courses are resources, our historical sites are resources, yeah. all these rivers, lakes and whatever are all resources. And what we need to do is to package it as a resource and market and bring in what they called educational tourism. Yeah. The government bought into it, provided money, and started then promoting University College Cork, University College Galway, University College Dublin, in the European Union, out here in America, mm-hmm. uh, in Asia. Now the student numbers in the UCC have gone up to 19, nearly 20,000. My brother was telling me we got a note home to the house in September asking if there was any accommodation because of an accommodation. They need right. accommodation for exactly. students. They've outgrown we, the campus. They have. So we have in our university here, a university that's every bit as good as University College Cork. Mm-hmm. And what I think needs to happen is a proper packaging and marketing and targeting mm-hmm. of um, communities in the United States. And the Irish American community is one. Like, for example, you have all these Irish Americans meeting once a month with the ancient order of Hibernians and other societies because they love their culture. Yeah. A lot of these have kids and grandkids. Do you not think they would be interested or they would encourage their kids and grandkids to come to uh, the University of Montana were they to know sure. that the kid can do a major and at the same time learn the language, the history, you know, about the culture of their own people? Right. Of course they would. Yeah, of yeah. course they would. Yeah. Um, as, so, as far as uh, any ground we haven't covered, is there something that you would like to talk about um, that we need to cover uh, for... Well, because you have your event coming up. I do. So let's talk about that a little bit, Terry. So we've got a, you, the Fringe of Ivor Studies is putting on an event. It's the largest event that they host in the year to Correct. support your program. Correct. Uh, when is that? It's on uh, Saturday, March 16th from 6 to, to 9.30 yeah. in the Hardy Inn Park site. Yeah. And it's a culmination of a, a day of celebrations. Yes. Uh, for St. Patrick's Day. Right. But so for those of us who want to get a head start on St. Patrick's Day, this is the perfect opportunity, right? This is where you get warmed up. Yeah, Yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. So you come and there'll be um, a, a, a live and silent auction and there'll be plenty of corned beef and potatoes. There'll be Irish music and Irish dance. And mm-hmm. you're just asked to, you're asked to come and just to help us to build a program and secure the program. And, right. Uh, 
add to the program. Yeah. And you can do it either by coming or you can also go online. You can donate if you yeah. can't make the event. It's, yes, if it's they want to go online, where do they go? Friendsofirisstudies.com. Okay. It's not a dot .org for no. the nonprofit side. This is a dot .com. This, it is a nonprofit. It is a nonprofit. Yeah, so it's a 501c3. Any donation you make is 100% tax deductible. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Correct. And so, uh, friendsofirisstudies.com. And then yeah. you can buy tickets as well, probably. You can buy tickets online and you can also buy them at the door. Yeah, so, exactly. How many people do you normally have at your party? Oh, 250 people. That's typically. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It's a great, um, a lot of work goes into it. Of course. But it's worth it in the end of the day because you get all these people coming together. You get to meet and talk and mix yeah. and mingle with people. Yeah. And even though there's a lot of work and you're very tired, I always feel the day after, you know, um, a kind of a renewed energy. Right. You know, so, wow. Well, when you put your work into something and you don't get any reflection, that's a difficult thing. But when you put your work into something and you get something positive back, obviously that's where all that, you know, uh, upswelling of energy comes from, for sure. It does, yeah. yeah. But it's great. I mean, you look at it too and you see the number of people that actually support the, um, the program, who are interested in the program, that are committed to the program. Yeah. I mean, it's just, that's what makes it all worthwhile. My wife has often said to me, you know, why do you keep doing this, you know? And I've said to her, well, you know, I mean, I suppose I could do something else and maybe it would be better. But like there's 15 years of my life gone into building this and there's 15 years of an awful lot of other people's lives gone into building it. There's mm -hmm. so much commitment from so many people that obviously people want it, people mm -hmm. love it, and we need now to come along and secure it so the next generation of, coming, of kids coming up will have something you know, right. to experience that will give them, share the knowledge of Ireland with them and give them the opportunities to go back to Ireland and yeah. to study in Ireland, meet the people of Ireland, maintain the relationship that's so special between Montana and Ireland. 